Good day, people. You're listening to The Great Everything, an exploration into the stuff that makes us human. I'm Patrick, a former banking lawyer who saw the light and quit to dedicate my life to the pursuit of moral wisdom, which I know is a very pompous thing to say. It makes sense because I'm quite pompous myself. But still, it means that from time to time, I feel the pressing need to pop by and explain what I mean by that, the pursuit of moral wisdom. Becoming better humans, because I deeply believe we all want to be better. Not better than anyone else necessarily, just better than ourselves, better than what we were a minute ago or yesterday or last year. We're all on some path of self-improvement. The question then is, well, how? How do I improve? How do I become better? And, well, there's infinite ways to be good, so it stands to reason there's also infinite paths to virtue. There's so many different ways to become better. I like to talk about culture because I believe that engaging with the great works of our past and present, you know, music, literature, art, or hip-hop, anything, food, food is culture, these things enrich us, they, they ennoble us, and so they make us better. Philosophy is obviously a biggie when it comes to self-betterment. I don't just mean ethics, though, the branch of philosophy that deals with the questions about, well, what is good? What does it mean to lead a good life? Obviously, that's a tool for self-betterment. But also things like metaphysics, asking questions about the ultimate nature of reality. You might ask, well, how does that make me better? And my answer to that is, in a word, knowledge. Knowledge makes you better. Socrates used to say that evil was just ignorance of good. So the more you knew, in his case specifically about good and what it was, the better you were as a human. But I'm talking about knowledge not just of good, but knowledge in general. Knowledge of, you know, how this table was made. Knowledge of the cosmos. Knowledge about anything. Knowledge makes you better. Why? Well, because the more you understand about the world, the easier it is for you to live in harmony with the world. And I keep reminding my audience ad nauseum of that great Taoist principle that to be good is to be in harmony with the world. So to be in harmony with the world, you need to understand the world. So in a very real way, knowledge makes you better. But we very rarely ask the question, well, what does it mean to know something? What is knowledge? How do we understand knowledge? And that's another branch of philosophy known as epistemology, theory of knowledge. And I want to talk a bit about that today because today was the birthday in 1938 of Robert Nozick, one of the greats of American philosophy, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. Now, he's known for his theory of justice, he's one of the fathers of libertarianism, for many other great ideas that he introduced. But one of them is a very interesting theory of knowledge. And I want to talk about that today. Now, I don't think we talk enough about knowledge. It's a very relevant topic, because today we do have this rise of moral relativism and postmodernism and also the Trump version of alternative facts and fake news, it's becoming increasingly difficult in a world where people design their own truths and their own worlds they live in to actually point at something and say, well, this is a fact that we can agree on and so we can move on from there. It's becoming increasingly urgent to understand what we can claim to be knowledge as opposed to just a belief and what we can actually say is known and that can be agreed upon. Because without that, we can't compromise. Without that, we can't agree. And without compromise and agreement, we can't build anything together as a society. So that's why this is important. 
We're living in a world where we're all choosing what to believe in. And on top of those beliefs, we are building whole worldviews that might be entirely incompatible with the worldviews of others. But we are losing sight that certain things are just true, certain things are facts, certain things aren't just a belief, they are knowledge. So let's talk about what knowledge is today. And as you can hear, I've got a bit of a cold and I'm recording this all on my phone, so I, I apologize in advance for, well, the various reasons the sound quality won't be as good as usual. But hopefully the topic is interesting enough, although a bit nerdy, I'll admit that, to keep your, uh, to keep your attention for a bit longer than just a few minutes. Catch you after the break. Patrick, <laughs> I am humbled. Patrick, why are you blowing my mind, man? I wanted to say to you how much I've enjoyed the segments on your station today. You're always so busy creating all of this amazingness. Jeez, your show is just so stupid good. Honestly, the content that you produce here is truly, truly life-enriching. Patrick, hello. I was listening to you talking about shrimps. No one's communicating these ideas like you are. No one. No one anywhere. Patrick, I actually agree with you about emotions. I would say that emotions are clues to what might be true about reality. It's blowing my mind today. It's killing me. Patrick, you have no idea how refreshing it was for me to hear you share the advice that you shared with me in the segments that you did and the way you did. Anyway, I just really wanted to thank you. Thanks for always being there. Thank you for all you do on The Great Everything, and I'm always, always looking forward to hearing more. Patrick. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. <laughs> ah, nice people saying nice things. Lovely. Anyway, we're back with a show on epistemology, Robert Nozick, and the theory of knowledge. But before we proceed, just let's get a few caveats out the way. Because earlier I said, certain things are just true. They're facts, and we, we know them. And that's imprecise. Because it all depends on the framework, right? Everything is relative to a framework. So let's understand the framework first. If we're being super rigorous, we'd have to agree with René Descartes and his idea that cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And this realization is coming within a context of him trying to get to bedrock of what truth is, of what he knows, without any doubt. And so he looks around and starts removing from within the scope of knowledge anything that can be doubted. The problem is, of course, that very soon you realize that you can doubt pretty much anything. He says, well, you know, like in a dream, you don't know you're dreaming until you wake up. So this right now could all be a dream. This could all be an illusion. There could be an evil demon that's tricking me into believing that all the things I see and hear and touch around me are true when in fact they're not. I can doubt this reality around me. So what is it that is just beyond doubt? And he realizes, well, that I think. I can't doubt that I think. Because even if an evil demon were tricking me into thinking that I'm thinking, that would still be thinking. So I can't doubt that I think. I think, therefore I am. This is ground zero for knowledge, according to Descartes, a position that's known as uh, skepticism. Now, if we wanted to be even more precise, we'd say, well, you can't really say that you think, you can say that there is thought. You are aware of something happening right now, some form of consciousness, but you're injecting the idea of selfhood into, into the equation without there being any real evidence for you as a concept. However, 
whether we want to be kind of anal about it or not, we can agree that there is only one thing that we can be 100% sure of right now, and that is there is thought, there is consciousness. So in a very real sense, that is the only thing we know, that right now there is consciousness, or you are conscious if you really want to go with this idea of me, you, I, self. There is consciousness. So in a way, that ends the conversation. That's the only thing you can know, because anything else could be an illusion, it could be a dream, it could be some false perception. So where's the use of that? I guess what we need to understand then is that that framework to us right now is useless unless we're talking on a purely metaphysical level. In the sense of how do we interact with each other in this world? Well, let's just assume that we're not in the matrix, that we're not all brains floating in a vat, that we're not all dreaming, that we're not all God having a sleep, and this is kind of what he's dreaming up, but that this is all real, and we more or less agree that there's a thing called matter around us, there's a thing called energy, there's atoms, and they coalesce into weird things like this bottle of bourbon, this chair, and maybe even Megan Fox. These things all are real and we exist. So within that framework, let's discuss what do we know? What is knowledge? Much of the history of epistemology, that is the theory of knowledge, has been concerned with identifying the conditions required for what is known as propositional knowledge. For a person to be able to know that a proposition, a sentence, is true. You know, so that would mean like, there is a cat on the table. That is a proposition. It can either be true or false in this branch of philosophy. And the aim here is to establish a definition that can group together all the different instances that we intuitively count as knowledge, that we just feel we should describe as being within knowledge while leaving everything else outside the net. What is everything else? Well, stuff like lucky guesses. If you guess something and it turns out to be true, can you really say that you knew it when you guessed it? No, you just guessed it and you were lucky. Or false beliefs. If you believe something that is false, well, you don't know it. But also there's beliefs that turn out to be true but that you believe for the wrong reasons. These we feel shouldn't be counted within knowledge. So we have to find a definition that leaves them out while including all the stuff that we feel count as knowledge. Except, of course, this formula has really proven to be quite elusive and controversial. Plato had a description of knowledge as justified true belief. This is often referred to as the tripartite analysis because it's got three parts, justified true belief. This has traditionally been accepted as a satisfactory definition. Belief, of course, necessary component of knowledge, because to know something, it requires you, at a very minimum, to think that it is the case, to believe it. But of course, for a belief to count as knowledge, it also has to be true, because we understand that what is false cannot be known. It can only be falsely believed. So it has to be a belief, and it has to be true. But it also has to be justified so that we can differentiate knowledge from lucky guesses that just happen to be true. So justify true belief. You have to believe that something is true, it has to be true, and you have to believe it for the right reasons. And there has been, at different times, debate as to what exactly constitutes appropriate justification, what makes the true belief justified, but 
Ultimately, this analysis, justified true belief, has been accepted as the best available working definition for knowledge. In the 60s, a philosopher called Edmund Gettier highlighted a fundamental flaw in the tripartite analysis. He came up with a series of examples that passed the tripartite test, that knowledge is justified true belief, but that just couldn't be intuitively counted as knowledge. There was something wrong about them. A typical Gettier example would be like this. I see Elvis in a diner. Now this isn't the real Elvis, it's just a very convincing look-alike, but based on this visual experience, I formulate a belief. Elvis is in the diner, and the belief is justified by the visual experience, of course, but you know what? Maybe the day before, I heard that Elvis is in town, so it makes sense that I'd see him there in the diner. And finally, let's give some props to this look-alike, right? He did a great job. His costume is painstakingly accurate. Anyone would be fooled by it. Now, unbeknownst to me, in that very same diner, locked in the bathroom and probably sitting on a toilet eating burgers, is the real Elvis Presley. So, in this example, the belief that Elvis is in the diner passes the tripartite test, justified true belief, because it's true, he really is in the diner. And I believe that Elvis is in the diner, so that's two out of three. And finally, given all my reasons, I'm justified in believing that Elvis is in the diner. I don't just randomly believe it, I have reasons. I thought I saw Elvis, I heard he was there, and the guy I saw just really looks like Elvis, almost identical. Anyone else in my position would believe that Elvis is in the diner. Yet despite all this, despite its passing the test, I think we all agree that my belief isn't knowledge. I don't really know that Elvis is in the diner. So what's lacking, what's missing in this example for it to depict a real instance of knowledge? Gettier cases highlight an underlying intuition that we don't know something unless our belief in that thing is linked to its being true. In the tripartite analysis, the linking role is performed by justification, right? But this example shows that justification, it might be necessary, but it's not always enough. Because here we have justification, I am justified, but I don't know that Elvis is in the diner. So, Gettier cases show how justification can be based on something false. Because here, my true belief that Elvis is in the diner, because I believe it and it's also true, is based on a falsehood that who I saw in the diner was actually Elvis. So this false belief leads me to believe that Elvis is in the diner, when in fact he is in the diner, but uh, not for the reasons I believe. So my belief that Elvis is in the diner is, is an accident. It's entirely unconnected to the truth, to the fact that Elvis is in the diner. Justification has failed to perform that linking function between my belief and the truth of the belief. So, what is missing here? What do we need to do to understand what knowledge is? Is there maybe a deeper form of connective link instead of justification, which, if we identify it, can more adequately serve as part of a complete description of what we can count as knowledge? Into all this mess, along comes Robert Nozick, born today in 1938. And he's got a diagnosis for the weakness exposed by Gettier. According to Nozick, the real reason I don't know that Elvis is in the diner is because I would have believed that he was in the diner even had the real Elvis not been in the diner. I would have believed it even had it not been true. So my belief doesn't track the truth. 
So Nozick's remedy is to replace the justified true belief formula with a new formula. That I know a proposition X, let's call it X. I know X if X is true, if I believe X, and if X were not true, I wouldn't believe it. That's known as the variation condition. Why? Because, of course, if it varies, if the truth varies, if Elvis is not really in the diner, then I would not believe it. In some way, there would be a link between the truth of Elvis being there and my believing it. That's the variation condition. But there's another condition, a fourth condition. This is it. If X were true in some alternative scenario, I would still believe that X. This is known as the adherence condition. Right? So, if Elvis were still there, but in different circumstances, then I would still believe that Elvis was there. So, what these two conditions do, variation and adherence, it's kind of like, you know how in Top Gun or these other plane fighter movies, there's this uh, scene where they're fighting each other and there's target lock. I don't even know how to describe that other than target lock, because that's what the movies always show. So, in a way, it's like you've got a target lock on the truth. If it ceases to be true, or in scenarios where it's not true, you don't believe it. Because the reason you believe it is the same reason it's true. And if it's true but under different circumstances, you still believe it. It's like you have a target lock on the truth. Your belief tracks the truth, no matter how different in different alternative scenarios it might be. The reason you believe it has something to do with it actually being true. It is not just a random belief that happens to be true by luck or by accident. But let's unpack that a bit. We're trying to understand Nozick's new formula for defining knowledge, what's known as the truth tracking theory, because in it, your belief that something is true tracks the fact that it is true. And there's these two new conditions, the variation condition and the adherence condition. The first is that if the thing were not true, I would not believe that it is true. And the second is, if it were true but in different circumstances, I would still believe that it's true. In that case, my belief would adhere to the truth. So, the reason we needed this is because, remember my earlier example, Elvis in the diner? That was a situation we knew wasn't really knowledge, because I believed something that was true, that Elvis was in the diner, but I believed it for the wrong reasons. But that example doesn't pass Nozick's test. Which is good, right? Because it means that Nozick's test makes it so that example doesn't count as knowledge. And we don't want it to count as knowledge, because it's not knowledge. So, that example, under Nozick's test, I don't really know that Elvis was in the diner, because had he not been there, I still would have believed it, due to my seeing the lookalike. The belief does not pass the variation condition. But the variation condition alone isn't enough. It only tells us half the story about how a belief should track the truth. Here's another example explaining why we also need the adherence condition. So I'm in a diner, and as I pay the bill, I hear a waiter run to the table next to mine and tell the customers, oh my god, Elvis is in the toilet. So I leave the diner believing that Elvis is in the diner. And that's true. The waiter actually did see Elvis in the toilet. But moments after I leave, the waiter has a change of heart. He feels bad. He said, oh my god, I gave away private information about Elvis. He's a customer. I betrayed his trust. I betrayed his privacy. So in order to avoid Elvis any embarrassment, he goes back to the table and he lies to them. And he says, oh, it was all just a false alarm. I didn't actually see Elvis there. It was just a lookalike. 
So in this case, this is a true belief that I have, right? But it's accidental. It's accidental because it's just an accident that I left the diner before I could hear the new conversation between the waiter and the customers, before this new evidence could emerge, which would change my belief that P, because had I stayed an extra minute, I would have heard the waiter say, oh, it was just a false alarm. So I never would believe that Elvis is in the diner. And in this case, this case which we agree, I hope, that is not knowledge, it also passes the variation condition. It ticks that box. Because if Elvis had not been in the diner, had the proposition not been true, the waiter wouldn't have seen him, wouldn't have run to the table to excitedly tell them that Elvis was there. So I never would have heard that conversation and I wouldn't believe that Elvis was there. So it passes the variation condition. What we need to exclude this example from knowledge is the adherence condition. Because in the adherence condition, had Elvis been there, but in different circumstances, say a circumstance where I stayed an extra minute, I would have then heard the waiter say, oh, false alarm, not really him. And I, wouldn't, and I would not have believed that Elvis was there. I would have thought that it was just a lookalike. So the adherence condition is what we need to trip that wire and keep this example outside of the scope of what we call knowledge. So this is just in a kind of geeky way explaining that what Nozick has done is bypass justification in favor of a new connective link that anchors my belief to the truth that something is true. In Nozick's formula, my belief tracks the truth by being sensitive to variations, if the thing were not true I wouldn't believe it, but also remaining firm in these close possible worlds where the thing is still true but, you know, kind of details change. So this fixes the issue with the Elvis in the diner example in the first case and other Gettier cases just based on accidentally justified true beliefs. Right, so this is really, really nerdy and complex stuff, and I hope it makes some sense. But after the break, we're going to discuss why I feel that this isn't quite enough yet. It still feels somehow artificial. Something is missing for us to really be able to understand what makes something constitute knowledge. I mean, ultimately, can it really be true that all it is is just four simple steps? I know something if I believe it, if it's true, and I wouldn't believe it if it weren't true, and I would believe it if it was still true in all sort of close possible worlds. It just seems a bit too simplistic. What's missing here? And can we find it? I don't know. Probably not, but let's try. But first, a note from our sponsor. The great everything is brought to you by Beast Aftershave. In the morning, I splash it on and it makes me smell mainly. You got it, Rock. It sure does. If you want to be the king of the beast and smell like a jungle rat, cat, Meow. beast aftershave will turn the women into beasts. Mm. That's guaranteed by the Italian stallion himself. Hey. In the afternoon, when I put it on to go out with the guys and have a rendezvous, beast aftershave surrounds my face with class. Yo, Rock, you smell like a Frenchman. Beast after shave. I splash it on and it makes me smell mainly. You know, I know I said it wrong, but <laughs> it really don't smell mainly. I mean, do you think this stuff smells like a man? I say absolutely no. Can you dig it? 
Reef from Medicine Remix. Obviously a huge fan of the show. Can you dig it? Please, please, please go ahead and do that. That series. Can you dig it? Hey guys, we're back with our discussion on epistemology and the theory of knowledge. Now, if you're only just joining the show, do check out the earlier segments, because this is a bit of a geeky one. It might necessitate a fuller catch-up. But in case you don't feel like it, here's a summary of what's been going on. We've been looking at different accounts of knowledge, different attempts to define knowledge in a way that groups together all the various instances of what we should define as knowledge and consider knowledge, while at the same time excluding from within the definition anything that we intuitively just feel shouldn't count as knowledge, like lucky guesses for instance. We've looked at justified true belief and seen why this doesn't work, because there are instances known as Gettier cases that satisfy the test, they tick all the boxes of justified true belief, but we feel shouldn't really be considered knowledge, because maybe the reason we believe the thing has nothing to do with its being true, we believe it but for the wrong reasons. Nozick has come along with his truth-tracking formula of knowledge, where he tries to remedy this by adding new conditions. Conditions that, in a way, anchor your belief to the fact that that thing is true, in a way that if the truth of the matter were to vary or change or cease being true altogether, your belief would also vary accordingly. There's a direct line between your belief and the truth. So in theory, this should solve it. Except, I don't feel it does. And the problem here is the adherence condition, which I explained more fully in an earlier segment. The adherence condition is saying that if the thing that you believe to be true, and that actually is true, were still true but under different circumstances, you'd still believe it. The details can change, the whole background can change, everything can change, but the thing still stays true, you still believe it. That makes sense, right? Because Nozick has got that direct line, that link between your belief and the truth. You know, you've got a target lock on the truth. So it doesn't really matter what details change. The whole background, everything can change except the thing, but you'd still believe it because you've got it in your sights, right? You're not going to get fooled by little superficial changes to the, the scenario. Except think about what this is actually saying. Because in real life, there's infinite ways circumstances could be different, but the central belief still be true. There's infinite ways. Are we really saying that in all those ways, there's not a single situation you could think of where you might be fooled by some altered detail in the scenario? Okay, I realize this is all very, very abstract, so let me give you a clear example. You're driving by a diner, and as you turn a corner, you turn it just at the right time to see Elvis Presley step into the diner. This is the real Elvis, and you know it's the real Elvis. So you formulate the belief, holy shit, Elvis is in the diner. Now, do we agree that this definitely is knowledge? It has to be, right? You've seen it happen, you know it's Elvis, it's the real Elvis, he is in the diner, and you think he is in the diner because you saw it happen. This is knowledge, that's really clear. Now, of course, it's true, you believe it's true, so that's two steps satisfied. It also satisfies the variation condition in Ozick's formula. Why? Because if it were not true, you wouldn't believe it. If Elvis were not in the diner, you wouldn't have seen it happen, so you wouldn't believe it. So that bit's satisfied. What about the adherence condition? Well, here's the thing. I can think of at least one scenario 
where you'd fail the adherence condition. Imagine this. This is an alternate scenario, right? We're trying to satisfy the adherence condition. And you turn the corner, but you turn it, let's say, 30 seconds later. And so he still went in, but you came around too late to see it. So in this situation, it's true, you know, he is in the diner, but you drove by too late to see it, so you don't formulate the belief. So the adherence condition isn't satisfied because it is still true, but the circumstances have changed. This time you drove out by a bit late. So you failed the adherence condition. Yet we've agreed that this was clearly a case of knowledge. You saw it happen, it happened, it's true, it's knowledge. So why does it fail the adherence condition? Well, the point here is, I think it's all just a bit of a clusterfuck. All these various definitions of knowledge don't quite work. It's frustrating, and I feel it's a frustration that is shared by a lot of you. In fact, I got this call kind of about just that in the break. Hey mate, I'm loving this segment. I love the way that you explain these ideas so clearly and your deep knowledge of Western philosophy. It's really refreshing and enjoyable to listen to. Um, I'm taking issue with the premise of this segment that having more knowledge makes us better people uh, in my experience and in the examples we've seen throughout world history that just doesn't seem to be the case at all and uh, just explaining what knowledge is doesn't seem to go come any closer to justifying that claim um, also um, I can't seem to understand how describing what knowledge is using language would ever get outside the um, very sense of knowing and truth embedded in the words themselves and how you can kind of it's like being conscious of consciousness it, it, it seems to turn in on itself thank you dear listener for the kind words and also great points now let's look at them a little on knowledge making us better I'd say it's a belief rather than a claim. I mean, it's not something that I can scientifically prove because better isn't really a scientific concept, right? I mean, what is better? To you, it might mean kinder. Or someone else, it could mean healthier. And for me, it might mean taller. Actually, I'll tell you, it does mean taller for me. That's what better means. But anyway, I assume your objection to my belief is based on this idea that a lot of very smart people have been, you know, horrible conquerors and dictators and psychopaths. So knowledge didn't really make them morally better. And that's a really good point. But just for the sake of argument, let me play devil's advocate here. Would you say it was their knowledge that made them morally corrupt? Would they have been better humans from the ethical perspective had they known less stuff? I mean, I guess that's unanswerable, right? It's a counterfactual. But I think there's a case here for saying they still would have been dicks, just, you know, ignorant ones. Maybe the knowledge made them more effective at being dicks. What do you say? Which, in some way, couldn't you call that better? I mean, I'm being facetious, of course. But my main point is, if you're asking me to back the claim that in all circumstances, knowledge makes us morally better, and that it's not possible to be more knowledgeable without having a corresponding increase in your ethical commitments, then no, you're absolutely right. I can't back that. But it's also not my claim. Because I think that in a less rigorous but still very real common sense way, it does make sense to say that knowledge makes us better. Not necessarily ethically, 
Although it can lead to that, think of how knowledge of animal suffering can lead to people giving up meat, like it did for me. But knowledge still equips us with tools to making better decisions and navigating our way around the world more effectively. Or maybe it just increases our understanding of the universe, you know, making that understanding, quote, better. On how this all relates to justified true belief, I mean, you're right, it doesn't. But this was meant to be a show about Robert Nozick, you know, our little birthday boy today, and his theory of knowledge. But of course, taking it to the practical, we are often faced with these situations where what we can claim as knowledge is in dispute, right? People are denying scientific fact left and right, saying climate change isn't real, or denying the biological basis for gender, as conspiracy nuts. It's like we can all just make up our own minds now about what's true and what isn't, and you know, facts be damned. So given this issue we're facing, and I think it's a big issue, I think it is worth exploring definitions for knowledge. You know, definitions that we can hopefully agree on, so we can have a clear distinction between belief and knowledge, and say, hold on, I don't actually know this thing that I'm saying, because it fails this common test for knowledge. So let's say Nozick's test is the right one. I mean, it's not, we've seen how it doesn't work, but let's just go with it for now. And let's say this test is taught in schools and we've all internalized it as a society. And then someone comes along and says, man, you don't get it. Trump's actually super competent. He's totally on top of things. He's just a really good guy. It's all just a liberal media conspiracy to make him look bad. You listen to this and you say, okay, so you believe it's all just fake news. But this fails the variation condition in the test, because if it weren't true that it's all a fake news conspiracy, you'd still believe that it was. So you don't know it's all a fake news conspiracy, you just believe it. And that's a really big difference, it's a significant difference. And of course you can apply the same to any conversation about God. Basically, what we have here is a society that has internalized rules that can help us immediately distinguish between belief and knowledge. And that's incredibly valuable, in particular when we're discussing, you know, how we want to build future societies. But you made another point that's really important about looking at it through the language and propositions, and I couldn't agree more. The issue with this way of looking at knowledge is it's restricting. No definition is ever going to be perfect because life is too complex, it's too varied to fit within some four-step rule, right? I mean, sure, the definition can help us formulate rules of engagement for debating the big issues, but it can't truly encapsulate all of knowledge. It's too limiting. Language is limiting. And because there is a real difference between knowing that a statement is true, like the capital of Japan is Tokyo, and just knowing as an experience of life, it can never really explain all of knowledge, just with a, that four-step rule. So how about I take your suggestion and we pivot away from Nozick, and we try to talk about knowledge a bit more broadly, in some way that is perhaps useful to us in having those big discussions. It seems to me there have to be at least two levels for knowledge, so let's call them true knowledge and commonly agreed knowledge, and the names I've chosen clearly give you an indication of what they mean, but in case they don't, true knowledge I guess is knowledge of what is true, a truth about the state of the world. In the strictest sense, I guess we've got to agree with the skeptics and Descartes that the only thing that we can be certain of without any possibility for doubt is that there is a conscious entity with which we happen to identify. So in this strict sense, this is the only thing we can know. But whether we're in the matrix or not, in order to live fruitful lives, we have to have structures and systems that allow us to communicate and pass information that we can all agree to rely on, right, to build that world we want to build. 
We take our perceptions at face value and say that within this framework, whether it's an illusion or not, there is a world that contains what appear to be other facts and entities that we interact with. So in commonly agreed knowledge, what counts as knowledge would be no more than what we commonly agree can be considered knowledge. Information that we can assume accurately represents a state of fact and that we can base predictions on. So within this conception, knowledge is kind of like a form of currency, an abstraction that we all agree on and that provides a system of mutual exchange. This uh, commonly agreed knowledge, I guess, would be the focus of what we would have to try and define. But here's the thing. If we take a close look at commonly agreed knowledge, we realize maybe we need a further subdivision. Because commonly agreed knowledge works kind of like currency. It's something that we agree to agree is knowledge. We're going to count it as knowledge because it makes our life easier and it helps with, uh, well, working our way around the world and figuring shit out and being able to base predictions on stuff. But ultimately, there's at least two different kinds here. The first, I guess, you could broadly consider knowledge through direct experience, right? I know something because I'm certain of it. I've independently verified that it's true. So I see a tree, so I know a tree is there. I'm on the phone to my friend, so I know my friend is alive right now. Personally, I think that this is all that counts as real knowledge. But we have another tier here. We're still in the realm of commonly agreed knowledge, so it's still within that currency framework, but now we're expanding the language to include what I guess you might consider knowledge, but is hearsay. So imagine someone asks you, when did World War II start? And you say 1939. Well, you weren't there. You didn't see it. You just know because you read it somewhere. That's what people say happened. Is this knowledge? Now, in my personal view, I wouldn't count this as knowledge. But uh, I acknowledge that in the real world, we have to have a lower evidence threshold so we can count things as knowledge, you know, like stuff we read in a textbook. Because otherwise, we would all just be limited to what we see outside our window. And that's clearly not enough. But maybe we should have a different term for stuff that we verify independently and stuff that we read in books. I mean, think about it. Almost everything that you quote know is something that you just know from hearsay. It's not stuff that you've seen. It's not stuff that you've experienced. I don't know that the world is round. I mean, I quote no because that's what all the smart people say, but it's not like I've been able to independently verify that. So I think that there is a bit of a problem here. Ultimately, we need a solid definition to be able to avoid obvious aberrations because we might base our quote knowledge on hearsay from unreliable sources. So this is an area that we really need to work on and understanding which sources are reliable enough to be able to say, if I heard it there, then it counts as knowledge. And that is obviously a problem that we're facing now with fake news and which news outlets actually give us the truth or at least something that approximates it. But speaking of truth, moving on. Every definition of knowledge we've looked at, and I think any definition we should consider, has to start with truth. We can't know something that isn't true. But then, of course, the question of what is true pops up as a whole can of worms. But it's relevant, so we've got to look at it. I think a good definition of truth is it happened. It represents an objective fact about the world. <laughs> Don't get me started on objective. Then the question is, how do we know something is true, that it actually happened? 
And the fact that we can't really be certain, strictly speaking, of anything being true other than consciousness, you know, the skeptical position, that leads me to think that instead of truth, we should be talking about true to our best understanding of the world. And that way, we open the road for commonly agreed knowledge, you know, the kind of knowledge we just agree to agree on, something we can all concur is the case, whether or not it actually is. So that then means that we've got to make other kinds of considerations, because our best understanding of the world includes stuff like, well, we are absent of mental and physical disorders or alterations, and our sensory perceptions are adequate evidence of something being true. And science and math, they're all adequate indicators of truth. We all have to agree on that, according to our best understanding of the world. But of course, our understanding of the world is subject to change. And our parameters for assessing truth are too. I mean, science will evolve. Our sensory perceptions may change. We, we might find out we've all been colorblind the whole time. And I guess we can't make our ability to know things subject to future science. So we should be talking about our best current understanding of the world. So for us to know something, it has to be true to our best current understanding of the world. Now, I hate to introduce relativism into this quagmire, but do you think this entails that in 300 BC, I would have known the sun moved around the earth? Because that was the best current understanding, right? I mean, that's in the Bible, you've got Ptolemy's theories, you know, everyone thought the world was geocentric, or most people at least. So if we're trying to determine truth to our best current understanding, we can't be testing against future standards of knowledge, right? So does this mean that BC, I would have known the world was the center of the universe? I guess there's another question, and that is that to be able to know something, we need to know that it is true to our best current understanding. It needs to be verified as being true. It's not enough that it exists independent of any observer. You can't know what you don't have evidence of. You can just believe in it or have some rational theory about it. I guess knowledge in this sense would require verified truth and that implies something profound. So to verify something, you'd either have to do it through first-hand verification. You know, you are the first to verify it. You've discovered it. I mean, maybe you're not technically the first to verify it, but you've come to know it independently of anyone else's discovery. Point is, you are relying on your own verification, your own experience of it being true. You have direct exposure to the evidence. Or secondhand verification. Someone else has verified it. it the, someone else has already jumped through the hoops of relevant tests for it being true to our best current understanding. So in that case, you're relying on someone else's verification or a reliable chain of verica verification. <laughs> Fucking hell. You say verification many times in a row and you do get messed up. But you're relying on a chain that goes back to a first-hand verification. Either way, there needs to be some kind of arbiter of what is true something that establishes that it is true and that thereby gives you some kind of certainty. You know, it gives you a sanction of truth, which of course brings us back to the problem of reliable sources. But either way, it looks like experience, whether yours or some direct change to a reliable original source is necessary. So we go through this whole rigmarole and we ask all these questions and ultimately we just reach a point where we got to shake our heads and say, this knowledge business, it's a fucking quagmire, isn't it? I mean, maybe there's no solution. Is there just no definition of knowledge that can adequately encapsulate everything that should be there while at the same time excluding stuff that doesn't belong? 
Maybe not. Can we not systematize the variety and the, the complexity of life in a way that accurately delineates between knowledge and belief in a way that works and just makes sense? Maybe not. But even if we have no solutions, we got to ask the question and we got to keep those questions at the forefront of our mind because we know this. Every day we're going to enter situations and conversations where there's going to be a real difficulty in bridging gaps, in bridging those ideological divides, in finding a way through disagreement that is productive, that actually lands us somewhere where we can build something, even if it's just within an interpersonal relationship. We need to be doing this. And that's really hard when we're living in a world where what is a fact is under debate. And I know, strictly speaking, yes, it's all relative. Strictly speaking, we might be in the matrix. This could all just be an illusion. We're brains in vats. It's all just a dream. But at the same time, it's the best we've got. We don't know any better world right now. So it's important to say, hey, let's plant a flag right here. This, this is an object. This is solid. This is something we call liquid. This is something we call red. Hey, but maybe your red is different from my red. Okay, but can we agree that that wavelength, that uh, certain number of nanometers, whether you see it as green and I see it as yellow, we just call that red? Can we agree on that? Can we at least have some baseline, some bedrock, something we can all stand upon and say, okay, it looks a bit different to me, but I know it's here? Because without that, without that bedrock, it's all just quicksand. If it's all just quicksand, there's no way we can agree on anything. Everyone's just within their own little subjective world. And being part of a community, being part of a global community, it involves building bridges. It involves getting out of your own little subjective world and understanding that we're trying to build something. And if we don't, we're just going to die, ultimately. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Like our strength as homo sapiens is exactly the fact that through language we're able to group together and devise ways of navigating through the world together as groups. If we miss that because we all retreat within our own little ideological barriers where we even determine ourselves what is real and what isn't, no matter what science tells us, no matter what anyone else says, well that's the end of us. So sure, Maybe we will never really be able to know what is true, but we have to at least agree intersubjectively that certain things are facts, certain things aren't, and that based on those, certain things are knowledge and certain things are just beliefs. That's an important distinction. But hey, I know we haven't found any solutions to this, but with philosophy, that's often the case. It's more often than not just about asking interesting questions. Those questions are important. And if there were solutions, I surely wouldn't be the one to have found them. This is stuff that's been talked about for, well, at least 2,500 years. Plato was talking about it. So where does that leave us? Nowhere, really. Just at the end of a very long, rambling and kind of geeky ride with no answers, just more questions. But uh, I guess it's important that next time we meet someone we disagree with, at least we can ask of ourselves, is what I'm claiming to be the truth actually the truth? Do I really know it? Or is it just something I believe? Does it pass those tests? Whatever the tests might be. And if it doesn't, that doesn't mean you can't talk about it. But if it's a belief, just posit it that way. 
even from within just beliefs, there's still ways to find bridges, as long as you present it as what it is, a belief, not necessary knowledge. Anyway, at the end of all this, what can I say? I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do the thing, you know, the sharing, the joining the newsletter on thegreateverything.com or just tweeting or Facebooking or send me comments. I like hearing comments and questions and answering. But until you do, I guess I shall see you some other time with more of The Great Everything. Arrivederci.